0: Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we've got a longtime Charlottean, Ernest Ike, the founder of Shandoka Motorcycles will be joining us or is joining us. A great podcast today with Ernest. Many of you at least know of him and his motorcycles. Um, He has been at a number of events over, gosh knows, probably as as long as almost I have been, probably five or six years, going to startup events, supporting the startup community, supporting startup founders, and being as big of a cheerleader out there for, for other founders as you could possibly be. All while building out his own company, his own startup, and really wanted to sit down with Ernest and talk to him about the difference between what he's, you know, working to build a, a product based company, taking traditional, you know, gasoline powered motorcycles and converting them into electric motorcycles, um, essentially again a product versus the software that is the you know the norm here around charlotte so to speak and so it was a a great podcast kind of running through what his story is how the concept came about um what he's had to do to get to where it is um, where he is is taking it going forward what the vision is how it fits on the global stage probably more so than it does here in the u.s stage but why the u.s is still so important to it so really fun interesting podcast with Ernest, and certainly hope you enjoy Today's podcast is another edition of the Charlotte Angel Connection. Ernest, welcome to the show, man. I'm really excited to dive into this conversation with you.
1: Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, William.
0: So, um, for the audience out there, um, you, you've missed out on already a couple of good laughs between Ernest and I, so I'm pretty excited. I I know we're going to share some more as we dive in here. So, um, (laughs) anyways, Ernest, uh, 60 second commercial in your background. All right. Or the longer um, or shorter, you choose.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm Ernest Dyke 4th I'm at least a third-generation Charlottean. Uh, proud graduate of West Charlotte High School, 1993. Uh, after high school at West Charlotte, I went to North Carolina State University. Go Pack. Yeah, oh yeah. The first three years, I was studying civil, mechanical, and electrical engineering. But it was conveniently before they had integrated that with computers, And so in my third year, I realized that not only did I have fundamental issues with the way engineering was done, I was also learning an outdated way of doing it. And so then I found myself in transition and landed in parks and recreation tourism management with a focus on facility design, program development, and leadership theory. So that, uh, that kind of kicked me off toward the West Coast. Uh, after a few months of wandering the country, I wound up in Telluride, Colorado. Uh, the next day, I had a job. The day after that, I had a place to live. And I stayed in Telluride and Durango region for about a decade.
0: Okay. What'd you do out there?
1: So in Telluride, the, the, the thing that I did for the longest term was I was executive director of a technology festival. So for people that aren't aware, Nikola Tesla is the person who created the electrical system we use today of three-phase alternating current. And the very first one of those was built outside of Telluride, Colorado to power a gold mine. So we celebrated that historical event uh, by inviting some of the world's luminaries in invention and scientific study each year. So I got to meet people like Gurry, uh, Murray Gelmon, who came up with Chromo Quantum Dynamics. I met people uh, that worked on the Manhattan Project. I met uh, folks who work in SETI, uh, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Uh, so in that, in that course of seven or eight years, I got a very good introduction to the general concept of invention and how to could take a crazy idea and turn it into something that's actually useful and i also found myself drawn toward clean energy and um finding ways to power our world without the emission challenges that everybody cares about today but nobody really cared about in the year 2000
0: okay so you were out tell you ride from 97 to oh five oh six. and am uh, i time stamping it about right
1: Uh, 99 is when Mm -hmm. I got there. So, yeah, I graduated NC State in 99. Okay. And then I was in Telluride (laughs) until 2010, uh, 2009, when the housing bubble and everything burst. And that made living in a very small resort town that was very expensive, very difficult.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you're you're out in Telluride during a... Um, hanging out with um, way smarter people than you're hanging w- out with the present moment in time. And um, 2009, you come straight back to Charlotte.
1: Oh nine ten, I went down to Salt Lake city. Okay. Working with a fellow, we had converted a couple of vehicles to burn hydrogen in the engines. And we're trying our best to turn that into something. Uh, but it just, it just wasn't connecting. It was really, it was before the oil company had the idea that hydrogen would prolong their uh, business, so nobody really cared about hydrogen yet. But it also had a ton of technological challenges that still haven't been solved. Uh, so we kind of gave up on the idea of a hydrogen ecosystem in Telluride, which you know at, at that point I had I had gotten a number of big players, the local power provider a fellow that owned his own megawatt hydroelectric generating station, uh, a couple other big industry, not industry, but people that were big in the area that wanted to try out the hydrogen fuel concept. But after driving a Tesla Roadster in 2008, I really knew that hydrogen just wasn't going to keep going. And I I didn't want to grab other people's money and dump it into something that I knew was going to be a dead end. Uh, so we went down to uh, Salt Lake City uh, and got some call center jobs and things to get through that crunch in the global, global economy at the time. Um, and that's when I was sitting back in my garage, frustrated at a motorcycle that I couldn't tune and realized I could make that electric motorcycle happen.
0: Yeah. Um, how long have you been a motorcycle rider? Uh,
1: I picked up motorcycling while I was in Durango. Okay. Uh, so I uh, bought a motorcycle laying on its side from a friend uh, and real, and just started really loving the motorcycle life out there. Uh, dated my wife on, on the back of the motorcycle. So every, every week we'd hop on the bike and go ride 150 miles or so stop at a hot spring or eat a picnic up in the mountains and stuff like that. And um, just, just really, you get good at riding a motorcycle when there's no guardrails and there's an 1100 foot drop on the other side of the yellow line. So, um, that, that encouraged it. And and it just, that love of motorcycling and the the freedom of going out and riding in the wind, uh, just really, really felt good. It felt like the right thing. So I, I landed in that.
0: Yeah. So you met your wife in Durango. She follows you down to Salt Lake.
1: Yeah, yeah. She came up with me to Telluride first and then we went to Salt Lake. uh, And then while in Salt Lake, we got engaged and got married and then moved back to Charlotte at the end of 2011, December 2011. We moved back to Charlotte.
0: So where's she originally from?
1: She's a Colorado girl. So she's from north of Fort Collins. Okay. Colorado.
0: So you, you taught her out of Colorado to Charlotte. Well done.
1: I don't know how that happened, but I think the beach had something to do with it.
0: Okay. So now all earnest, huh?
1: (laughs) No, not all me. Not all me. Definitely the beach. (laughs)
0: Um, So what have you been up to since you've been back in Charlotte in 2011,
1: 2012? Well, uh, when moved back, I started kind of in 2012 or so in trying to develop more of that electric motorcycle concept and the ecosystem. Uh, to pay for it all, I did uh, custom carpentry, built decks and fences and playgrounds and things like that for a number of years. Uh, so just kind of started my entrepreneurial journey by being a hardworking entrepreneur.
0: So um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the, um, about the electric motorcycle, right? So, I mean, you mentioned it a few minutes ago, and I think I saw it in your post in LinkedIn a few weeks ago, that in 2011, you had the idea, but technology or, or, mm-hmm. or the world wasn't ready for it. So talk a little yep. bit about the concept in 2011 and then how your bodge your time um, to the point where you decided to make a run at it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important question to dive into also because it, it gets at the heart of how quickly this space has grown. So when I first had the idea for the electric motorcycle, 2010, 2011, uh, the battery technology literally did not exist to do what I had wanted to do. Uh, There were other companies that were also getting started in the electric motorcycle scene. So right now, Zero Motorcycles is the best known of the North American brands. And at the time, they were really just a very beefy downhill mountain bike with a motor strapped into it. And there were a couple of other companies out there uh, that were doing similar work. And I looked at that and I said, well, that's not really a motorcycle yet. That's just a big electric bike. And when I had this this idea, I said, okay, this this 400cc motorcycle is uh, the right size to be considered a motorcycle. But in order to make it go on the battery technology available at the time, I had one company out of China I could order from. Their batteries had a known documented 60% failure rate with no returns accepted. And I'd have to put about 350 pounds of batteries on the motorcycle to go 40 miles. So I figured that's, that's not really gonna be a product that I could ever sell to anybody, but let's see what happens. Let's keep this idea quiet and a secret. So I did, it was really difficult to keep that idea that was so big as a secret Because as soon as you tell somebody, your one-year clock starts ticking on being able to get a patent. So I had to keep that pretty well a secret. In 2018, 2017, 2018, I finally had a provisional patent written that I felt comfortable enough with. And so I submitted the provisional patent. And just this past November 1st, got it issued. So I've got the utility patent approved as of three and a half months ago uh, for the U S and we're still in process for it in Brazil and China and India Okay. for for the idea of an adapter that takes a motorcycle and carries the structure that a motor used to carry. So on on about 30 to 40% of motorcycles, there's no frame that's under the engine, like on a bicycle, the engine is part of the structure. And that's where the patent that I have sits on replacing that with a structural adapter that holds the batteries and control systems to make the motorcycle go.
0: Okay. So let's dive into that for just a second, because I'm always curious. What's the patent process like?
1: Uh, The patent process will depend largely on who your patent attorney team is. Um, and the approach the one thing that i'll say at the very top is be very careful about any advertisement you see for someone that will help you get a patent because they'll help you get a patent but it not might not be protecting the thing that you want to protect uh so there's a big challenge in that some of the other challenges are that you know international patents are a little bit more restrictive than the u.s patent system as far as this thing called an inventive step that that is required in other jurisdictions where the US is more of is this novel they don't you know they don't require this very specific inventive step requirement the other thing is that once you file that provisional request for a patent in the US that's it you can't add more to it so you you can work from it and you can refine it a little bit but you can't put any new information into that patent request so you got to be very diligent from the very beginning while not telling other people about your idea so you have to you have conversations that are around your idea or you'll talk to somebody about something that's not at all your idea but it's got an allegorical tie to it just so you can get information sussed out of people and, and try to refine that concept then the process is really long mostly from the waiting period so there's about an 18 month backlog before the patent office gets to your piece in the pile but then when they get to it it goes really quick so you've got to be kind of be ready you've got to have that savings account stuff that you don't touch to make sure you can pay for the responses and all those types of things too and then you just have to have a lot of patience and and uh, a supportive uh, person by your side, hopefully a spouse. But uh, if you've got somebody that's very supportive next to you, that makes it easy too.
0: Yeah, no. Um, uh, having having that person by your side is always helpful, right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Um,
0: so uh, let's circle. We'll co- We'll come back around uh, to that. Um, so Shindoka electric motorcycle name comes from.
1: So uh, the the origination of the name Shandoka is uh, a Native American name for a mountain that's outside of Telluride, Colorado. Um, the The story says that Shandoka loosely means the storm gatherer or the weather maker. There's a 14000 foot peak outside of Telluride and you can, after living there for a while, you can understand what the weather trend is based on the clouds that are stuck around that mountain. Uh, So you can, you can understand how a group of people that has lived there for generations, like the original tribes that lived there, they could understand a lot more than we can, what that weather was going to be like, but the prominence of that mountain really, really stuck with me, and the the idea of that name seemed to fit with what I wanted to do with motorcycling, which was to gather all these different processes and ideas and creations and gather these different types of motorcycles together into one concept that we could use to replace all the petrol and gasoline heavy uses of motorcycles around the world. And so that, that stuck with me. And the other reason why I liked the name was I knew that I wanted my product to be global. So I had to find a name that people could say even if their tongue didn't speak English, right? Yeah. So, so there, there are certain, syllable, certain sounds that other languages cannot end a word with. A hard consonant is very difficult if you didn't grow up speaking English. So I wanted this this name of this company to be something that had a global meaning and anybody could say it. And as I've traveled the world with it, it turns out I was right. People can say it no matter what their native language is.
0: Yeah. Even folks from Eastern North Carolina, apparently can say it correctly. Right.
1: Yeah. Sometimes they need a little coaching.
0: Yeah. I Um, got it right though.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you did. There's (laughs) a lot of draw in saying Shandoka sometimes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, so you've got a. um, so, um, the baseline product, Ernest is
1: the baseline product for the U S is an adapter system that, uh, takes motorcycles and converts them from gasoline to electric. These are mostly focused on mid uh, sport bikes and cruisers. Uh, those are the ones that typically have the architecture where there's no frame under the engine. And then internationally, the approach is the same, but the motorcycles are a little different. So overseas, a big motorcycle is 125cc. And that's what moves most of the stuff around the world. Uh, So a lot of those motorcycles are designed in the same way where that small engine is part of the structure of the bike. And we're able to take those motorcycles and directly convert them also, which gives us a much better price point for developing countries. Uh, and the result is a motorcycle that costs that operator less than half of what it did on gasoline. So that money stays in the family. It helps support what what often is a multi generational family being supported by one or two breadwinners. Uh, so so outside of the U.S., this is very much a subsistence type of product solution. Whereas in the inside the U.S. and other what I call large displacement motorcycle countries. It's more of a nice to have or holy crap, that's a lot of power. So that's more the approach in the U S.
0: Yeah. So, Oh, so we're in a, um, we're in Charlotte, North Carolina, right? Charlotte's, uh, developed as entrepreneurial ecosystem pretty much right along the lines with when you moved back here, right? Starting back in 2011, 2012 is when it really started to take off a little bit. Um, as we all know, we see more, we see more fintech or software focused startups um, and you're a product startup, right? So how do you, um, how do you fit in, um, in the, um in the Charlotte marketplace, right? I mean, it's, yeah. um, you, I love for watching you roll up in your, um, L cam. <laughs> My grandfather had like seven cars and one of them was an L cam. And I love that thing. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah, awesome.
0: so anyways, yeah. I mean, you roll up in your, in your L cam with the motorcycle in the back and, um, right. Like how do you, how do the conversations differ for you than they differ with other entrepreneurs around town?
1: Uh, that's a fun question to answer too. I, I think that the root of it is that I don't try to fit in. Um, I, I know that I know that I don't fit in, right? So why try? Uh, is yeah. part of the, part of the answer. And, and then the other the other side of that is within an ecosystem that is not at all focused on what I'm doing. There are still people that get it, right? So in in the early days, uh, as Packard Place was was really just rel- relatively new when I came back. Um, Dan Roselli saw the potential in what I was doing and knew that it'd have a very long runway and was able to give me space inside Packard Place uh, in the drop-in co-working so that I had somewhere to legitimately work out of. Um, and, you know, And there are a number of other folks in the Charlotte ecosystem that are supportive, but it totally doesn't fit their mission at all and that's the i think the big challenge not just for the idea that this is a motorcycle but also it's a it's a physical product so when you compare that to the competition for money which is what investing is it's really difficult to stand up a hard featured product against something that could scale overnight if it's a success to millions of users if it's just software and it's just data and people just all you have to do is make sure your back-end servers keep up with the new people wanting to onboard and beyond that you can add features fix features replace features take away features just overnight if you need to whereas with with a, a physical product once you put that product out into the world you can't really update it you know you can iterate the next one and the next one and the next one until you get a much more perfect product, but you can't just replace it. And the other thing is you have to build one for everyone that you sell. So those are things that really make people who have grown up in their careers in a FinTech or a banking or a health focused place like Charlotte, there's a big hurdle for them to just learn about product development anyway. And then on top of that, um, thankfully, I did finally have one person who was um, very open about his view on motorcyclists, and it, it kind of surprised me, and I, I won't say who, it, who he is or where he's working and what he's doing, but he said to me, when I see somebody on a motorcycle, when I see somebody on a Harley, all I see is just this big, stupid guy on a dumb motorcycle. And that that one, it kind of shocked me and disappointed me a little bit because what you really should see is the guy that makes $250 an hour running an excavator or the guy that you're going to pay $300 an hour to fix your toilet when it clogs. Or what really impresses me is the guys that are, a lot of people that ride motorcycles are very high level industrial workers. So when I was at Myrtle Beach Bike Week, talking about my electric motorcycle and that, you know, we are building a battery that can dump 600 amps out of it into this motor. So we can get a full 40 horse from this motor. And the guy goes, Oh yeah, I'm an industrial electrician. Like we don't even start until 600 amps. I'm running this, I'm doing that. Right. So my market is very much aware of the underlying technology that goes into an electric motorcycle, but until now, until they see what I'm doing, they just think of as electrics as like a really weak Prius that you would never want to drive because it's no fun. Yeah. Now those those motorheads, those gearhead people, now they're seeing, okay, wait a minute, I can get more power out of the same space. right? That's what matters. And, and once you get that touch point, then the interest really grows. they ask more questions and more. So it's been a fun journey on that side. Um, I've been surprised that the industrial people that are often written off as not knowing much, they know a lot more about my space than people that hold themselves in high regard because they know everything about fintech. Yeah, really tricky balance, and and I'm kind of glad to say I don't quite fit in. Yeah,
0: this is good. (laughs) Um, it's good not to fit in, um, right. Kick down walls rather than fit within them. Um, so let's, (laughs) you brought up a good point. Um, right. (laughs) I mean, you bet on electric motorcycles, um, or are betting on electric motorcycles. And I mean, to your point, I think of electric motorcycles, um, I think of the um, you know, you go stereotypical, right? It's not necessarily what I think of, but you can instantly go to big guy full of tattoos on a motorcycle, riding down Interstate 95 um, on a Sunday afternoon for you know, with his sleeves cut off. And when you pass him in your, you know, SUV or whatever you're gonna pass the guy in, you instantly think that guy doesn't give a F about the world. Um and so
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, hey, look, let's save the world with an electric motorcycle, right? So how have you penetrated that marketplace that yeah. most folks would look at and say, no way and hey heck they care about a, a an electric motorcycle?
1: Well, I, last year when I went to Daytona, I said you know, so <laughs> Daytona's happening the first week of March, right? So I went down to Daytona with this and I was so let's set the stage really to get my teeth kicked in, literally. I,
0: right? I was gonna say, let's set the stage with this. Daytona is the largest bike week in the US, right? Outside of yeah. the one in North Dakota. Right. Or South, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. um, so you've gotten a, a green electric motorcycle that you take down to this big old boys tattoo laden motorcycle event. So all right, yeah. now you yeah. take it from there.
1: Yeah, so I, I, I get there, and I know I'm going in, like, literally, this is like 700,000 people on motorcyclists depend, descend onto Daytona for a week and a half, right? And anything goes except for a few very minor legal requirements on the motorcycle, right? Very, very limited things. And I, I did. I quite literally ex- expected to have myself physically threatened over bringing something this dumb, right? but what i what i found out was two things one people are more interested in power and performance than they are in the actual mechanics of the motorcycle and then the other thing that i discovered is that people hate their harleys as much as they love them right so while i was there the first time i went to daytona i fixed at least one harley every single day Cause word got out that that guy in the Shandoka tent has tools and he can work on your bike. So people would come to, people would come over like, Hey man, you got a such and such wrench. I need this. I need that. Right. So, you know, Harley, Davidson's are fun motorcycles. There's a great culture around it. There's very diehard users, but you always have to work on it. Right. And, and that's part of the charm, right? You have the knowledge to work on it. What I found is that really people care more about that end point performance. Can they really go on an all day trip, right? Can they trust that bike to start each morning when they want it to? Those things are actually a little bit more important after the technical need of, I wanna go 120 miles an hour is is met, right? So the I think the problem And and this is something that a a lot of people in the Charlotte area, a lot of us entrepreneurs have been through the the, uh, venture prize program on customer discovery uh, and and going out and talking to people about your product. And that's what I determined to do was to go talk to people, no matter how much they hate it and figure out why. And what I really think is the reason why people that, love motorcycles, don't like electric motorcycles is not so much the fact that it doesn't make sound or not so much the the idea that you're not shifting gears or things. What I think really matters is that to work on a motorcycle, you've got to have knowledge that has been accumulated over more than your lifetime, right? So when you work on a motorcycle, you're paying tribute to the guy that taught your dad and his brother how to work on motorcycles, right? So there's this generational knowledge that is embodied in how a gasoline engine works. And electrics threaten all of that knowledge, right? None of that knowledge is relevant in an electric world. So I don't think it's really so much of a we hate electrics As much as it's a, we value this knowledge that's been passed down. And we don't want that knowledge to be obsolete, because that means everybody that taught me this is now obsolete. I think our approach of taking an existing motorcycle that has a fan base, that has people that love it, and making it electric in a way that people can still tinker with, that people can still say, well, I want this switch to do that. And I want this switch to do that. And I want to put this here and I want to put that there. That still lets people bring their knowledge of ergonomics on a bike or motorcycle fit or the look. That still, that knowledge and that, that body of work is still intact. We're just changing the power source. And that's why I think we've gotten a lot more attention and been invited to some shows now is because we're not taking all that knowledge and kicking it to the curb. We're lifting it up to another next level that says, look what you can do now.
0: Yeah. So, no, it makes a ton of sense. So, um, and it's neat that uh, you're right, right? Um, I'll say uh, growing up in the Eastern North Carolina, um, I'll be, um, um, I'll state the obvious, rednecks love to tinker with stuff. Yep. um, Right? So. (laughs) Being able to continue to tinker is a um, is a is a winning formula.
1: Yeah, and you see that at motorcycle shows, the amount of detail and craftsmanship that goes into these custom bikes is just off the charts. And that's the point of a show bike is for the builder to show off their skill.
0: No, that's true. Yeah, no, you're right. That's a good point. So. Um, so you started in 2018. It's uh February ish 2023, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a long time, Ernest. Yeah. Um, so, um, how, um, how's it developed according to quote unquote plan? Um, and what have been, you know, some of the high, I mean, not deep into the weeds, but what have been some of the high level struggles of, um, Of getting it to where it is and and then we'll take it from there. And now after this, I I want to talk about a little bit more about where it's going from here.
1: Yeah. So um, I think entrepreneurs don't often like to talk about the struggles and the the hardships because they feel like it might scare off anybody that would be interested in backing them. Right. Or uh, they, they, you know, they feel like Showing a little bit of weakness or concern makes you a lesser entrepreneur, and so it's good to have a platform like this where we can we can talk about some of that. Right. Um, the the biggest difficulty in what I chose is that I am quite literally going to battle against big oil. Right. They don't like anything that shows that there's an alternate way to their way, so th- that's that's one of the the biggest even if it's not in my face every single day it kind of is and you know that there is someone somewhere with enough money to just absolutely crush you for the fun of it through negative advertising or or other such things so knowing that i'm taking that on is is a a big a big personal hurdle to have to do right um Along the way, though, you have other issues. Where, you know, for a while, I was I was trying to work with a group out of China to to just bring in something that I could white label and sell and, and get some cash flow going and sales because that makes investors happy because of this and that and the other. But I couldn't find anybody that could make me the exact same motorcycle twice. And you know, and every single time that you have a negotiation point somehow you get a lesser product or a worse this, or, oh, it's stuck in shipping, or you have this headache, or they didn't they didn't tell you about substituting something until you already got it here three months later. So I, there was a lot of challenges there, uh, just the, the general ecosystem. Um, and, and then really though, it comes down to funding for when you're trying to build a product. And um, from that standpoint, The the readiness of people to invest into a tech only thing like a a payment processor or, um, you know, a a, um, membership management or anything that's just a digital app goes on your phone. It's always in your customers pocket. They're always available that that business space has changed the appetite of investors to do something that takes longer to create but has a bigger potential upside. And so knowing that and and you know, celebrating my friends in the ecosystem as they get funding and their businesses go big and go through a failure point and then pivot and then get picked up and then exit and you're still like, okay, well, six months from now, maybe the patent office will look at my paperwork, right? Uh, it, it, you know, that that's, it, it's tough. And you, you learn to celebrate other people's wins and revel in the fact that they're, they made it through some struggles that you're doing. Also, you, you learn to take that in and internalize it and say, okay, one day it'll be my day. Yeah. You know, one day it'll be my day.
0: So. so let's talk about your day. So going forward, there's a, you know, over the course of the last decade, uh you know Elon Musk love him or hate him um has what's that hate him
1: okay
0: <laughs> fair enough yeah. um he has greatly impacted the battery um yeah. operated world right something yeah. that was to your point a Prius uh 20 years ago is now a Tesla model X that goes zero to 60 and 2.1, whatever stupid time is. Right. Right. Um, And so he's made it cool. Exactly. Um, So for that, you got to love him. And so, um, and as a result of that, we've had a, you you went from something that in 2008 was, would have been impossible because nobody would have thought it was cool to now it's a cool concept. People are, um, openly focused on green energy, clean energy. Um, and gosh knows maybe in another five years, you can go back and do your hydrogen thing too. Right. It seems like more of that stuff is coming on board, but we're not going to get in the weeds there as well. Um, but so you now have wind at your back, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it seems like the wind is picking up speed. Um, so, um, what is, um, you know, how do you take that now? You've got your patent approved. Um, you've got, um, green energy stuff. You've got Tesla's opening up their, um, chargers for other folks. You've got all of this stuff that just says earnest five years ago. Um, and yes, this is a really hard time, but maybe that hard time made it the timing really good. So how do you focus and capitalize on that?
1: Yeah, that's a a good point. And that's another, the other side that keeps entrepreneurs that are uh, looking at a tough product going is you know that eventually that technology curve and the demand curve are going to cross. And you, and if you can manage to be there just in front of the wave, as it's turning into a tube and you can ride that pipeline, right? You can get on it and go that that's, that is where Shandoka is sitting right now is um, we we've got the technology, we've got the know-how Our supply chain is finally kind of developed. Uh, We've got technical staff working with the company that can can get a product from a sketchbook into a produced functional safe product. Uh, And then on top of that, finally, people are starting to talk about the uh, impact of emissions on developing countries. So when I had this idea, I knew in that moment that what I was creating had more application outside the US than in. So I had already traveled a lot at that point and I had seen how motorcycles are used in Central America and Southeast Asia in a much different way, right? A motorcycle is a subsistence type of product in a lot of the world. Uh, So this past year, last year, about this time, uh, I traveled to Africa And went and took part in uh, Chogum, which is the the conference of heads of state of countries that used to be in the British Empire. Uh, And that's what really opened my eyes. So when I got to Kigali in Rwanda and and started counting vehicles and started asking around, every single day in the capital city, there are 50,000 motorcycle taxis, all of them 125cc all of them with no emission controls, all of them burning dirty fuel because that's what they get in Africa. And most of those guys working literally 12 hours a day on a rattly, shaky motorcycle to earn enough money to feed their family. And and that's where I saw the real impact that we can have is all of the, and it's not just about that one rider. What it really translates into is the general health of the community. Uh, A really good study was done recently out in California. And this really, this surprised me, but the number, it's somewhere in this range where there's about 20% of the cars in this area are now fully electric. And they've been able to document a decline in the rates of asthma and other respiratory illnesses that they can tie to the reduction in pollution of going electric. So that data lets me confidently go into a health tech conference and say, electric vehicles are a health conscious technology. You can put a lot of money into treatments for diseases, but it's way better to avoid the disease from the beginning, isn't it? So if we can go to- if we can go to developing regions, like you know, in, in Africa, you could chew the air. That's how thick it is with pollution. If we can replace all, even half of those motorcycles with electric, think about the positive health impact we'll have on that population. Think about the, the decrease in asthma and Alzheimer's and other medical issues that are related to pollution and poisons in our environment. And that happens here in the United States, also.
0: So, um, poor country guy's riding around on his motorcycle, 125 CCs. He's doing it 12 hours a day. Um, can you make it cost efficient for those folks to to flip the switch, Ernest? Or do yeah. you need countrywide subsidies? Or no? It's you've you've gotten it to the point where you think you can win in in that environment.
1: Uh, a little mix of both. Right. Yeah. So there's um, the technically we can do an electric motorcycle conversion retrofit in Africa for less than the cost of a new gas version of that motorcycle. The challenge, the biggest challenge is infrastructure over there. Reliable electricity. Right. Have, having that available. What we do have as a big bonus is a lot of the governments in these developing countries are aware of this problem. And so they've incentivized electric and electric infrastructure. Uh, the other aspect is it brings up some solutions for us. So one of the uh, employers that we're talking to in Rwanda, they have a, a sewing factory. So they have 4,000 people that sew clothes for European export. All those people walk to work. So the employer is interested in two things. One, if we can make a small, efficient electric scoot for them to get to work on, then their workforce is more reliable. But even better, if we make that electric scoot have a big enough battery that the worker can get home, plug in their kid's phone and a light source overnight so that they can study and learn in the evenings and then still have enough electricity in that battery to get back to work the next day, We've now created a way for workers to take energy home with them that beats some of the problems of the infrastructure challenge. So those type of solutions are things you you don't see until you get deeper into the problem.
0: Now, that's super interesting. Um, So from how do you sell that to U.S. investors or are you not only talking to U.S. investors?
1: We're we're not just talking with U.S. investors, right? Um, And then another another aspect that's coming along that's helping us, especially in Europe, is the rising price of voluntary carbon credits. So the next step in the evolution of what we're doing with Shandoka, and I'll talk about this a little bit now for the first time, is that... When carbon credits reach $150 per ton, which they're already trading at 110 in Europe, when they reach $150 per ton, we can almost give away our electric motorcycles in Africa for the carbon credits that our riders are going to generate by not burning petroleum. So now we've got a financial market that's completely inverted. Now, you know, a couple of years from now, we can give a rider an electric conversion, as long as we can track their miles or kilometers, and sell those carbon credits to pollution-intensive industries. So that that's the really cool trick that we've got now, and we're starting to talk to some investors about that. So people that are in clean tech or health tech space need to start considering those carbon markets in part of their business model.
0: Yeah. <sighs> in 2011 you had an idea for an electric motorcycle um how have you continued to stumble through electric carbon credits um uh motorcycles and take home energy in africa and right i mean um it's it's a vastly like you just wanted to make electric motorcycles and cut out the carmen, right? So um how does this how fast is this world moving underneath your feet?
1: It's moving really fast. It is. And um other other companies are finding that success. Some of them have been in the developing country space for a while. Um the 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 biggest mover, I think, is that China and Asia in general have been super focused on this for a long time. So they already have very high adoption rates and that's, that's created an industry that we can tap into. The, the, the issue is that the quality control within that existing market space is very low um, because of the dynamics of vehicle travel over there, right? They're not going over 40 miles an hour. Whereas here you know, in, in the US, if a motorcyclist is going 40, he's gonna tease you about training wheels, right? <laughs> so, so, so you've got each of those dynamics is getting a little bit traded off and balanced. But what, what keeps me going is, is knowing that the human race has to go electric for transportation if we're gonna survive. There is, there is no way out of what we're doing that still includes fossil fuels for transportation. There just isn't, and anyone that tells you any different is on the payroll of an oil company or heavily invested in one. the The, the truth is right in front of us. It, the film. Don't look up, right? You know, if you that puts it right in perspective. Just whatever you do, don't look at the carbon count. Don't look at the atmosphere. Don't look at the death in songbird population don't look at the destruction of wetlands don't look at this don't look at that don't look at that but hey gas went from 375 down to 325 last week and it'll go up to four four dollars two weeks from now but hey we lowered it for a little while yeah that game's been being played since the 70s and finally i think we're catching on
0: so you talked about the manufacturing consistency in China yeah um and um and your own struggles with trying to white label something from China um, yeah. I've seen the prototype on the um on the internet your prototype right I've seen it on um on LinkedIn and some videos and whatnot that you share uh you've got to move into a manufacturing phase yourself right yeah. so how do you tackle that?
1: So I spent the last two or three years also looking at where do I want to manufacture, right? What are some, what are some limiting factors? What are some encouraging factors? And um, one of them I, I kind of hinted at earlier in the conversation in the desire to move from Colorado to somewhere closer to a beach. Uh, so, but I, I also felt like whatever we choose as a manufacturing location, it needs to be a place people want to go to so that people can come and see what we're doing. You know, seeing it is believing it, experiencing it. That, that's how people get their mindset activated. So I looked all up and down the East Coast. I knew I kind of wanted to be close to a bike rally. And Daytona is a great town during bike week, but it's not that great outside of bike week. And hurricanes have a way of getting uh, creating problems in Florida. Looked at the same with Myrtle beach. And I knew that 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 would cause issue, you know, hurricanes still hit South Carolina coast too. Um, but I managed to look a little further inland and we've got an actual, a spot that we're looking that we are planning to activate this year. Um, there's a small town uh, about an hour from Myrtle beach and about an hour from Charleston and about an hour from Columbia, which puts it right in the middle of nothing. And that's exactly the perfect ride for a motorcycle. Uh, So it's a little town called Lane, South Carolina. uh, And we're working with them to take an abandoned textile mill that closed two weeks after NAFTA and refurbish it to be a motorcycle manufacturing center. Uh, We're really excited about the progress on that and some granting support that we're getting from different government agencies to try to make that happen. Uh, And and it's, it's the type of thing that I was never sure how long I'd be working out of my own garage and basement and stuff on this. But you know, to to your comment of things are going to accelerate and move really quickly now, that's what we're seeing. And we're trying to be prepared for that with a, a facility that can handle demand.
0: You move into uh you move into production phase, right? Um yeah. that's a that's a, that's a transition. What, um, how do you thinking through that? How do you plan through it? Um, how does that change things over the course of the next 12 to 18 months for Ernest and Shindoka?
1: Um, I, I think I, it, it puts me at a point that I had already laid out two years ago when I thought this was going to take off and then the pan, well, three years now when the pandemic hit, right? So the, the week before the pandemic was declared and things were closed, I had my first, big event with lots of people loving it and and really interested in the adapter and talking about it and pictures on it. And then a week later, I can't go talk to anybody anymore. I can't show this off. And, and you know, all of us had to navigate that in our own ways. So I I had this roadmap. Uh, Now I'm just happy that I can take this left turn and follow that fork down the road and see where production and, and, and taking this on officially, where it gets us.
0: So um, you excited or nervous?
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm outrageously excited. Um, Of course, you're always nervous that there'll be a, a misstep or a hiccup or a challenge. But the team that I've got working with me now is just top notch. And we've overcome a number of problems very quickly. We've managed to re-engineer something in two weeks time and get it produced in time for a show. You know, so we we've we've demonstrated within our own working group that we can we can handle these challenges when they hit us. Uh and we've got solid interest from our, our first round of funding that's going to get us through uh, this initial step. So, so
0: how long do you think that'll take you or what's the projection on funding to take you through 2020 the end of the year?
1: Yeah, we are, uh, successfully into a $12 million Uh, race. So by the end of this year, uh, we're looking to bring in 12 million and participate participatory funding. And we are, we're looking for people that want to be active investors, but we're also open to people that just want to trust us to get this product through and moving.
0: Yeah. Um, that's awesome. So, um, fundraising process standard as everybody else
1: uh we're i've looked at a lot of different ways to raise money right i i tried crowdfunding for a while but that's really tricky on a a high dollar product Mm -hmm. and it also on on this type of business space a crowdfunded solution often scares off the bigger check writers it makes the cap table complex it a lot of people that put in just a little bit of money feel like they should have a lot of say, and it complicates things indeed. So we're focused more on the family office and the private equity side right now because those folks get to make their own decisions, and they can go outside their standard playbook. And then I know that next rounds of funding will be a lot more traditional or have the potential for that. Yeah. also got a good potential to just cash flow ourselves once we get this production facility up and going so it could be that folks that come in in the first round happen to be in the only round and that's what I'm hoping for is to never have to raise money again
0: yeah so well um you said it just then it's a um you know the playbook for you's been a um it's been a what a ten eleven year playbook yeah. um to get to this point so um, I mean you've got uh, you got a cool, really cool product. Um, you've got the again. Um, you got momentum at your back from where the world's trying to go. I think um, you've supported a boatload of folks here in Charlotte. So, gosh knows you're doing some support back, right? <laughs> um,
1: I do try, <laughs> thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it's um it's cool to see how far you've gotten this thing. Um, and the direction you have it pointed and where it can go from here. So, I mean, I've thoroughly enjoyed spending the last, you know, 50, 55 minutes talking with you about it. Um, it's always crazy how fast our time comes to a close, but, um, thanks for sharing your story with us, Ernest. It's, um, it's an awesome story and, um, needless to say, as many as many cheerleading sessions as you've been to for other crowd uh, for other uh, founders around town, I'm sure you got a, a pretty big cheerleading section here for you in town, um, rooting for you as, as as the next 12 months kick off. So um, go get them and good luck, man.
1: Thanks a lot. I really appreciate, it, William. I really do.
2: Does not imply a certain level of skill or training Opinions expressed on this program Do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors The topics discussed and opinions given Are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs With the appropriate professional Regarding your individual circumstance Investments described herein may be speculative And may involve a substantial risk of loss Interests may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.